So, Bob, I thought we would answer patron questions and make this a patron-only episodes to reward the patrons for becoming patrons. What do you say, patron Bob? I'm probably going to cry then. (laughs) All right, let's do it. So this is the Psychology of Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. And I am your friend Bob from school from, we were just talking, 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, And a therapist in practice here in Seattle. So this episode is for patrons of the podcast. If you're not a patron, the episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of our best episodes. You also know that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. And we also give a portion of people's pledge to different uh, scholarships that we give out to people who are in the field and they need help with their tuition. So become a patron now. Do it. All right, Bob. So patron Grace from Nashville wrote in and said, how do I help my fiance who has severe depression and anxiety? He struggles with everyday life. He wakes up panicked and often throws up throughout the day due to his anxiety. He's got his dream career, yet he's constantly telling me he can't feel any of his success. He tells me he has thoughts of hurting himself again. He's been in therapy for years, and every time his depression comes back, he seems to refuse to believe that any tools he was given in therapy will suffice. He keeps telling me I don't understand what it's like for him, and I never claim to, but because of this, he refuses any of my suggestions. I almost always feel like he doesn't want to get better, even though he tells me every day that all he wants wants is to be happy. Is there a way for me to get through to him? He's in therapy, but I feel like he's not giving it a fair shot this time around. Bob, what do you think? Huh. Well, I I don't know. I, this is going to be interesting. Here it comes. <laughs> what's up? Like, what's happening for you when your partner won't take your advice and won't accept help from you? You guys kind of maybe get stuck in a little tug of war there, and maybe you're not really hearing each other. Maybe he has a point. I mean, I don't know what it's like to throw up all day. Like, that sounds awful. Um, What would happen if you let go of giving him advice or trying to get him better and you just accepted him as he is? Not because you're saying, well, that's as good as it's going to get, but because that's how it is right now. Maybe right now he's anxious. And you know what? Maybe I have a point. Maybe he is not doing the most that he could. I don't know. I mean, I really don't. How do I know that? But... Even if you do have a point, I don't know that pushing it on him is actually doing him any good. And it sounds like it's just inviting him to dig his heels in. And then you feel alienated and he feels alienated. And that don't make for good connection with one another. So you have the possibility, though, of thinking about, well, what is this like for me when my partner struggles mightily all the time? And there's nothing I can do about it. Is there something I tell myself about me? Like you guys have heard me say, well, I'm my utility. And so if Colleen has trouble and you know, then, and I'm supposed to be helpful about it, then, um, um, you know, that's more about me than it is actually about providing any help for her. It's possible that there's something you're telling yourself about um, helping him, but that's not really about helping him. It's about helping yourself. And, uh, well, whatever the end, it flew out of my head. (laughs) Yeah, the only thing I'll add is uh, framing it as a grief process. He might be permanently distressed, for the rest of your life together. Mm-hmm. And you might need to accept that. Yeah. 
uh, and that's sad. And it's good that you care. It's good that you're trying to help. But sometimes, our, as Bob is pointing out, our efforts to um, help can hinder and uh, can deny what's what is really happening for someone. You know, uh, for you, it's a, it's it, it's from the outside. It can be very simple. It's like, well, clearly you're depressed and anxious. But when you're in the midst of that storm, it's not a simple thing that you can just flip a switch and change, you know, depression, you you know, you might look at him and be like, so you realize your anxiety is irrational, right? Like it doesn't make any sense. And and he might even kind of know that, but when you're drowning in anxiety, there's no, it's of little comfort that it's irrational. You know, when I'm having a panic attack, for example, and someone came up to me and just said, Hey, snap out of it. You realize this is irrational. It's like one, uh, duh. And two, if, if I could, if I could convince my body and brain of that, then yeah, I would do it. I'm trying. And three, you're not fucking helping, <laughs> you know, like it's not helpful to be criticized and, mm-hmm. and, uh, given in the intimation that somehow I'm to blame for all this. It's, it's debilitating. It's, it's awful. So, um, now, is it possible that he's not doing enough or could do more? might even be sabotaging himself in therapy or otherwise, you know, it's possible. Um, Might you have a line on what could help him? Yeah. And listen to my deep dive on codependency because there there might be some kind of other focus that's happening for you. Um, I don't know. I can't tell from from the way you're saying this. Um, I will say that it's almost a universal thing for spouses of depressed and anxious and or anxious uh, people to feel what you're feeling. To be like, uh, to especially on the ongoing nature of anxiety and depression, to just be like, why are you not getting better? And when without anyone to blame, it's easy to blame the victim. It's easy to blame the depressed and anxious person. Just be like, there must be something wrong with you and your process. Instead of, this is just the way that it is, and it's and. Uh, Grace, it's a, as you know, it's incredibly inconvenient to your life that he's depressed and anxious. It ruins his life and yours. Um, not ruins, but it you know greatly negatively impacts his life and yours. And it makes sense that you'd be like, okay, uh, I need to get control of this thing. I need to do something. I need to help. I need to. And maybe there are things you can do. I would ask him, you know, how can I help? And maybe his therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Uh, a big part of this though is the grief process when i've i don't know grace but the people that i've worked with in your situation almost always what ends up needs to happen what is need what needs to happen is that you the person in your position just needs to like just cry and accept and talk and relax and you know grieve just i thought it was going to be different. I thought adult life was going to be different. I thought having a having a husband was going to be different. I thought that th- mental health worked differently. I thought there were meds for this sort of thing. I thought therapy would work. And it's not that isn't always true. You know, I thought that happiness was achievable if you worked hard enough. I thought life didn't have this much suffering. <laughs> and it, that's what you're grieving, you know, potentially you're just grieving that, that expectation that 
you were told. And it makes sense because that's a huge loss. You're giving up a huge, happy, comfortable vision of the future, potentially. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but... You know, that that's that's what I've worked on with people. And so for you, Grace, you deserve to talk about it, mm-hmm. and, you know, have other people listen, yeah. understand what you're going through. And that's where the uh, surviving of the suffering uh, lives, really. And he might not be able to be that person because he's suffering too much, you know. Anonymous Patriot said, I first discovered you on YouTube sometime right after the pandemic lockdown began. At the time, I found myself in the deepest pit of my life. I was in a place of immense anxiety and depression, and during that time, your videos helped me so much. Your sincerity, calmness, and expertise made a significant impact on my life. I started therapy, and I began my journey of self-growth. I appreciate you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for all your efforts. I can't say thank you enough. Wow. End of email. I I don't usually include emails like this, but I, I don't know. I just really liked this one because... I I think it reflects uh, a lot of what people will tell me about recovery and healing. And I think it's an inspiration maybe, you know, of I started therapy, I'm, I'm beginning my journey of self-growth and healing. And, you know, thanks for um, highlighting aspects of humanness that gave me uh, awareness and and the uh, permission, so to speak, to like say, hey, maybe I deserve to heal from this sort of stuff. And and it's not just that I'm weak or something. or yeah. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, but an honest patron, um, thank you for yeah. emailing in because it, you know, this is the wind beneath my wings. Anonymous patient wrote in and said, my whole life I've been stuck in a loop where I experience frequent loss and grief, especially in romantic attachments. I think it's because I'm not good at choosing the right match for me. And in friendship, sometimes I get triggered and hurt and I tend to isolate as a result. As a result of this, I experience a lot of depression and resignation. They say the best cure for a broken heart is to do something you love and are passionate about. But I don't enjoy anything and don't have any faith that the future will be any different. I have had three therapists in the past, but I made significant that I have made significant progress with, but they all eventually gave up, got frustrated with me and became hopeless because I had because of my complex PTSD. Hmm. Now I desperately need therapy and a corrective experience with a therapist that won't give up on me. What do you recommend as a way forward? Bob. Keep looking for a therapist, I guess. And then when you find one, um, or as you interview therapists, probably let them know what your experience has been and how the three therapists previous, while helpful, also left, and that you need someone to hang in and maintain care and interest and curiosity and not fall in the pool. Maybe the other therapists somehow fill in the pool of despair with you. Um, it's it's kind of cool, actually, that you're writing in. Because despite what you're saying about how awful it's been, you're actually still seeking. It's like there's a part of you that wants contact, wants connection, and is not dissuaded by the setbacks and the disappointments that you've suffered. So hang in there. Yeah. I would say that anecdotally, 5 to 10% of therapists are the sort of therapists that will 
like Bob and I never terminate with a client, even when things get real rough or rarely terminate with a client. Let's just put it that way. That uh, the majority, I mean, do you think that's true that it, it's rare uh, for therapists to, you know, like just when you take every therapist, not just a therapist, oh. we know that uh-huh. kind of align with our way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But when you just do like a general swath of therapists in Seattle or anywhere in the United States, that most of them, when they bump up against difficulties with complex PTSD or borderline or something, that they will terminate. I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I don't know what the statistics are on that, and I don't have a con- I think you're the only therapist I talk to these days, so <laughs> <laughs> so um, um, I don't know. But I trust your perspective because you see a lot more of the world than I do. Well, I don't know how much of the world I see. I know it's a very, very small pocket, but a lot. I get a lot of emails from people yeah. talking about being fired from their therapist because mm-hmm. the client exhibits problems of a mental health nature. God forbid. And I have a fair amount of trainees who absolutely have that impulse and, and will sometimes actually cause, cause, and they'll hear, they'll tell me that other supervisors will say, you know, you could always terminate with that client. I'm always like, if every physician, you know, cancer physician terminated with every patient who had stage four cancer, you know what I mean? Like it, or even stage three or whatever, like when things get cancer. rough mm-hmm. or and there's treatment resistance, like that's really the concept is whatever treatment you're providing, it's not working right away. And so we call that treatment resistance. You know, you have treatment resistant depression, treatment resistant borderline, treatment resistant complex PTSD, or things don't just go as fast as you think they will or how, uh, you know, certain uh, treatment protocols, uh, manualized treatment uh, protocols will claim in 20 sessions you're going to cure someone of such a thing. It's just like uh, a lack of understanding of research, lack mm-hmm. of understanding of personality disorders, lack of understanding of trauma, complex mm-hmm. trauma. Um, but I, I, I just, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, let's just say, a, it would be hard to find a therapist if you were just randomly uh, shopping who would, you know, stick with you even when things get kind of hairy and by hairy i mean like the client's symptoms get worse the client has a tremendous amount of transference to you as a therapist and uh, falls in love with you or starts to kind of hate you at times or uh, you know avoids therapy or whatever that can happen which is obvious and understood and understandable given people's traumas it's 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 the it's par for the course it's it's we know what's i know my therapy with someone with borderline for example is working well when they start attacking me (laughs) like i know okay we because because often people with borderline they won't attack me in the first few months because because they don't trust me yet as soon as they start to kind of trust me, that's when their transference kicks in. And, and it's not a constant barrage of attacking me, but, but it'll happen. And uh, I, I'm like, okay, we've, we've reached stage two, which is good. You know, it, it, it's not a happy day for me, but why did I get into this field if not to help people like this? So, uh, so it might, you know, anonymous page, it might take a while. Uh, and as Bob was saying, just ask questions, just be like, so I've had, because if someone asked me, if someone called me up and said what you said, and I'm a patron, I would say, if you and I 
if you just decide to work with me and we determine that you're in the right place with me, uh, I have a policy that I do not terminate clients because they have symptoms. I do not terminate clients because things get a little hairy between us. Uh, I do not terminate with clients when, when it gets tough for me as a therapist. Uh, I, I only terminate, um, when the following things happened, which have never happened, you know, like I have a policy that if a client like is violent with me, I'll, I'll probably terminate with them. But, but you know, I've had clients get violent with me and I didn't terminate with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, I'm trying to think of a, an example where I ever terminated with a client because of something that they did, you know, I've only terminated because the contract is up or, or, I moved from a facility to a different facility and I you know, had to, that kind of thing. And even then I would offer to bring him with me, that kind of stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think I, well, I did terminate with a client not too long ago because I did not hear from them over several sessions that they wanted therapy. They just were sitting on my couch and I kept asking like, what do you want therapy for? What do you want? what do you want me to help you with? And, and I, I, you know, basically understood where they were coming from. You know, it, it was really hard for them to explore the self. And, but at a certain point, even though I can kind of see the problem, I was just like, and, and until you ask me for help, uh, I have other clients who are on the waiting list who actually, and I did say this and I, I wasn't being a dick about it, but I just thought, we're just wasting our time here. And it's really hard to go through a session without knowing what they want me to help them with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, other thing you're saying in honest patron is uh, that, you know, they say the best cure for a broken heart is to do something you love and are passionate about. What do you think about that, Bob? I, I had never heard that before. Uh, I'm not sure that it is a cure for a broken heart. It seems like grieving is a cure for a broken heart. Um, not not necessarily distraction, though. Don't get me wrong. I think you should do stuff that you love to do and that gives you a sense of satisfaction, or even just distraction from your pain. But I don't think it's going to cure your your broken heart. Yeah, it's a distraction. It would nothing about that would cure a broken heart. Nothing about that is going to cure your complex PTSD. Yeah. Let alone just regular grief of and loss of, of relationships the, but it's this American patriarchal anti attachment orientation oh, yeah, that. of you need to figure out how to be independent and uh, alone, you yeah. know, isolate. Yeah. And I'm always like, no, the, the no. cure for a broken heart is to have corrective experiences where you're loved and people are loyal to you and, mm-hmm. You can depend on them, <laughs> you know. That's the cure. Yeah. And to to say that and to and to have it have it be so revolutionary and so avant garde, you know, and so mm. rebellious yeah, right. against the system to say no, human beings are uh, designed for attachment mm. and closeness and proximity. You know, the, the, I said something in class a few weeks ago and, and I, I was like, oh, I kind of like that because yeah. it just popped in my head was, you know, a hundred thousand years ago in our quote unquote natural state as we're evolving, you know, a couple, you know, 200,000 years ago, mm-hmm. 
uh, it was it, it Clint Eastwood's of the tribe would die very quickly. <laughs> you know, the dude who wanders off into the sunset by himself uh-huh. starves and is eaten by a panther. Yeah. Uh, we depend on each other. You know, chimpanzees, a sole chimpanzee doesn't just wander off into the sunset and brood about his own, you know, life uh, and and go at it alone. Chimps don't go at it alone, as far as I know. Bonobos don't, you know, go at it alone. They, they depend on each other for uh, protection, for sharing of resources, for attachment. Yeah. And... We are them. We are bonobos and, you know, chimps and us and bonobos all came from the same ancestor and probably evolved very similarly in terms of our attachment needs and, and in terms of our behavior. And this notion of just wandering off into the sunset is this total American patriarchal thing of like, I, uh, I'm above attachment. I don't need other people. I can do things on my own. I can wander off into the wilderness and survive and 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 proliferate. And and not only can I do that, but that's the ideal. That's the mm. especially the male ideal mm. to to be able to do things like that. You know, oh, I won't go into it, but well, I'll just say this. I had a family member tell me once that he knew someone who had died and uh, at work, it was a friend of his at work, and he was telling me he's like, yeah, I I really respected him so much because there was this one time when he told me before he died, he said, I I can't remember what he said, something like, I let people know some of me, but I never let people know the full me. Hmm. I never let people know the full me. And my family member is saying, and it, and I'm aghast. I'm like, that sounds incredibly sad to me. Yeah. But my family member is like, I have so much respect for that person. I'm like, so where does that come from? You know, like what, yeah. what sort of moral or value would cause someone to do that and be proud of themselves and two, to be proud of someone else as, as they're describing that, you know, yeah. it's such a anti-human way to live. Yeah. It's like saying... I don't drink water because I don't want to depend on it. Yeah. And someone else being like, oh, good for you. Yeah. Look at you. You're, you're totally independent of water. You know, it's <laughs> like, that's not how anything works. And um, anyway, so anonymous patron, I hope you have people in your corner. You deserve that. A therapist included yeah. who won't abandon you. Yes. And by the way, therapists out there, and you've heard me yell at you before. If you don't want to work with people who have those kinds of problems, you must screen them from the beginning and not even engage with those kinds of people who might have that problem six months later. Because people with personality disorders or issues, you know, deeper issues with complex PTSD will not present those symptoms probably months into treatment. So you actually have to figure out how to screen. Yeah. Which means you might... uh, you know, with that fishnet, catch a lot of other kinds of fish that you're not trying to get and screen those people out. Yeah. So, uh, and that is your ethical responsibility. And you will not hear other people say this, by the way. There's a lot of people are just like, 
Well, you know, if if you run into a problem, because the thing that people will say is, well, I don't have competence in that area. I'm like, okay, I don't know why you, you don't have competence in that area. You're a therapist, <laughs> but fine. You got to screen them out from the beginning. You, you can't, you can't, you have to announce, look, I don't treat personality disorders, which mm. is totally fine. Sure. But a lot of people don't know they have personality disorders when they come in. So you right. have to, you have to be able to screen them. Yeah. Anyway, um, but what I recommend, which is what I push my supervisees to develop, is competence and comfort and a support structure around them so that you can actually help people like this. Because it is, you know, one of the, if not the most fulfilling part of my job is when I'm helping people with their schemas and their self-destruction, given their defenses developed when they're very young, to be able to identify those and, and cure them literally is one of the most, you know, it's one thing to give someone a skill like, Hey, recognize your automatic thoughts. You know, it's fine. But to be able to correct for mistreatment growing up that results in all sorts of self-destruction is, you know, quite possibly like the top meaning of my life, you know, like when I die, I'll say, well, I tried to do that thing. You know, I put my expertise to that thing and I, and I put my nose to the grindstone with some clients for that thing. And that was worth it. You know, I do. Uh, on jib from Orlando says, what books do you recommend for students who are becoming a therapist? I am currently in my f last year of my MSW program, and I'm hoping if you can suggest some must-reads for students who are pursuing career in psychotherapy. Bob, you're, you're much better at this than I am. Yeah, I don't read books. <laughs> Neither do I. Um, um, why, why look in a book? Why not get a supervisor? Um, put your energy into that. I, that's what I would do. I, the best learning I've ever done... Well. Here's a thought, though. Instead of a book, how about just figuring out what it is that you want to treat and learn? go learn it. Like, go get training. Yeah. Um, um, and or a supervisor who knows that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. Or a supervisor who knows that stuff. I don't know that... Look, I'll just speak for myself. Book learning isn't going to do it for me. I can't get myself to read them. I don't finish them. And um, it doesn't matter what's in them. It could be, the, it could be gold. And I won't be able to extract it because that's just not how my brain works. I gotta find a teacher, so I'm not a good person for books. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I did read your book on supervision, though. That was a good book. <laughs> well, you edited it several times. You read it several times. <laughs> Somehow, you and I let like four typos sift through. I I miss type. I can't believe I miss typos. I miss typos, huh? Yeah, well. Four typos in like one chapter, Jeez. and my chapters aren't even long. Yeah, yeah. but I edited it well good but yeah well, I, well what I, about me in books you think i read them or something well i thought you were more of the book type than mm. i was but you're similar to me as nah. you're describing it and i don't know if i've ever really said this out loud or even allowed myself to think this which is that one i agree with you that books are extremely limited in, in the ability to uh, help one's development as a therapist and two, I find it interesting that people are so oriented towards books mm. that it, I just can't relate to it. But mm. I always just figured that they um, must be tapping into something because, you know, I have mild dyslexia and, wow. and read really slow and it, it really 
is a labor to read things. Mm-hmm. You know, people will say, oh, I sat down with a book and I, I just finished it one night. I'm like, how? Yeah. I, I just think like there's no way, even if I loved a book, there's it requires so much mental effort for me to focus and like read something. I, I, I just, I cannot imagine. And I've never been that way. I've never been that way where people are just like, yeah, I just breezed right through. I'm like, I don't breeze through anything reading. Mm-hmm. I never, mm-hmm. I, I do not breeze. And I know I'm particularly tired when I'm 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 literally staring at mm-hmm. text and I cannot process what I'm looking at. You know what I mean? My brain is just like, it's just a a blur of of letters, you know, it's not a blur literally, but conceptually it's a blur anyway. So I've always just figured it was me, but as you describe it, cause you read fast, right? You're a, you're a good reader. I'm a pretty good reader. Yeah. That, that, where do we get our knowledge from in our field? And as you're saying, it's, it's from good supervision and training and, and experience and thinking and maybe even podcasts, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Having said all that, you know, books by uh, Yalom, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, the um, Gift of Therapy and Love's Executioner. Love's Executioner, one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, books by Jeffrey Kotler, actually. He specializes in books for novice therapists, Jeffrey Kotler. In fact, we read one of yeah, his books back in the day, but he, he's written a number of books. Mm. Um. I would recommend Attachment and Psychotherapy by Wallen. I would recommend... Really? David yeah. Wallen? Yeah. Oh, I went to a training he gave once. Oh, really? Yeah, nice guy. I liked him. Brilliant book. I mean, oh. it's it's dense, but uh, uh, it's a one-of-a-kind book. Yeah. Uh, it really... You know, he talks the way we talk about attachment and psychotherapy. It's not just like for yeah. two-year-olds. It's uh-huh. like integral in your therapeutic relationship you know what he said about teenagers he said teenagers are big jerks because developmentally speaking what happens is they're big jerks and the parents survive them and still love them and then the teen gets a felt sense that they actually survivable that they truly are survivable so it's sort of different than that person who said well i kept myself from being known and that's a good life you know actually to be known fully and accepted fully when you're known that's quite that's quite something so he thought that the developmental reason that um, teenagers are so difficult is because, um, I don't know if it's true, but it's because so they can find out that they truly are lovable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think teenage years, it beca- because of, and I'm not saying anything new, because the orientation is from family to peers in the world, right. there's suddenly all this invitation for humiliation and, and rejection. And that awareness is overwhelming to the 13-year-old where they become extremely insecure Mm -hmm. and scared and oriented towards trying to do something about that. And one of the solutions that a lot of teenagers will land on is I'm going to act like I don't care because that's the only way out of this humiliation is if I act like, like I don't care about acceptance. Mm-hmm. I don't care about you liking me. And so, um, uh, you know, that's that, but there's a lot of different, you know, behavior. Sure. Teenagers aren't always rebellious. No. Teenagers aren't always like that, but, no. um, but it is a, it's an overwhelming sense. And particularly if you have a, a few, uh, you know, insecu- attachment insecurities 
built up from the past, then it's going to really challenge you. I mean, it's securely attached kids heading into, you know, teenage years. It's, it's a lot. So, uh, but anyway, there is, there's that book. There's also another book by Michael Kahn called psychotherapy relations. Anyway, I can't remember <laughs> the process. Wait, how do you spell his last name? Uh, C uh, K A H N. Mm. Uh, I'm looking behind me. <laughs> I'm trying to find. Somewhere. You have a lot of books for Oh, you. there it is. Uh, the GIF. Oh, wait. No, that's not it. Um, oh, Between Therapist and Client by Michael Kahn. Between Therapist and Client between Michael Kahn. That's another good kind of easy to read little paperback. I probably got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about this whole thing because when I was in grad school in my clinical supervision nightmare, um, that was one of the things that would happen. We, You know, you had to present a case. And then the other students had an opportunity for feedback. And a lot of the times it was critical feedback. And a lot of the times it was, oh, have you decided, have you ever read this book? Blah, 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 blah. <sighs> so annoying. I just, at some point I just resigned from that class. And I said to my teacher, if I have something positive to say, I'm going to say it. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep, keep my mouth shut because this is like swimming with sharks. Yeah. Right. And that's another result of insecurity. That I found. Yeah. So what, um, when I was early career, uh, I, you know, you have, I had to confer with a lot more colleague therapists, you know, like I would have a client who would have other therapists involved with the family or something. Right. And so there was uh, in psychiatry and this sort of thing. And so there was a lot more talking with other uh, therapists and, and strangers, you know, these are people I didn't know. And, uh, it was a cliche that would happen where we'd be talking about something. It would be, you know, cause half the time the conversation would be extremely awkward. You know, like uh, we either just didn't really click or we kind of even disagreed about something. Mm. And I always just felt like unless we can enhance each other, then we should probably just cut our losses. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't really, I didn't, I never really went into it thinking, that this was going to go extremely well because it often didn't. Mm-hmm. But but one of the cliches that I would hear from these other people, and if, and after the fiftieth time, I would just be rolling my eyes as they're saying it. Is oh oh oh, you got to read this book. And it was always it was never like some standard book. It was always some random. And in my head, I realized that every therapist apparently has this book that they love, <laughs> you know. But but it's a completely different book. <laughs> That is very particular to them. Mm. And they're just like, whenever they're insecure or there's an awkward moment, they just, because I don't know if it was all the time this was true, but I think a lot of time the implication was, I think you're stupid. Mm. And if you read this book, you wouldn't be stupid because I read this book. I'm not stupid. (laughs) I I don't think that was always the implication, but I think that was definitely the implication Mm. or where they were coming. I mean, do you think that was true? Yeah. Uh, I always thought it was young people trying to, you know, flex their muscles a little right. bit. And Yeah. I know. read this book and, and I know this thing and I notice you don't know that thing. Yes. And so I'm going to tell you how you really need to know this thing. And uh, it would just drive me up the wall. Uh, again, I would hear it time and time again. And eventually I just... I, every time I heard it, I would yeah, write someone just, off. Just turn, yeah. I just like, oh, you're you're one of those people. Yeah. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with recommending a book. No. You know, but there's a way of recommending it. Say, hey, well, I read this book. Yeah blah 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 and what i learned was blah 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 you know that that you could say that you could be like oh well also because the other implication that that uh i blanched at which was because they would always ask have you read this book and in my head i'm like again after the 50th time i get asked this question i'm like what's the chance that i just happen to read that random uh you know back of the shelf ass book you know what i mean like what's there's the a chance lot of psychology books. yeah there's a lot of psychology lot books. Of books now now if they said like have you read the gift of therapy by Irvin yalom then you know that that's one thing but if they but it was always this completely obscure book that mm. i'd never heard and no one had ever heard of before except mm. for them mm. and and i'd always say no you know yeah. like it's like here it comes you know yeah. no i have not read that book and you know cue you explaining to me oh for the next, whatever you're gonna get learned yeah and um so yeah uh you and i have we have a similar attitude about yeah. That, yeah um and i noticed that when i crossed the five-year mark <clears throat> Oh, and finally felt that's a pivotal time. Finally felt confident in my profession. Right. I no longer blanched as much to when people did that. I, I just yeah. I was like, oh, sweetie, you know, that kind of attitude <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of viscerally angry. It was right. more just like, oh, I you're insecure. And yeah, <laughs> that's OK. <laughs> a hug (laughs) all right this next email is kind of long but i think it's a good one anonymous patron says hello dearest kirk and bob recently i was talking to my new therapist we were in a second session the topic uh the topic of my last romantic relationship came up this man and myself were together for five years in therapy i reckon i recounted an incident where he came to pick me up to go to the movies and I could feel there was something going on with him like rage was boiling just under the surface but he was trying to keep his composure for our date for our our second date I felt so uncomfortable and it quickly became obvious that he was driving erratically I was scared for my life we got to the movie theater in one piece and I spent the evening trying to appease him Mm -hmm. he admitted his dad had made a hurtful remark right before he had to leave to get me for the date And he was just mulling that over in his head during the whole car ride. He was hurt and angry, he said. Mm -hmm. He seemed to feel better after telling me about that. My therapist stops me and says, as I'm recounting this to my therapist, and says, well, that sounds like you're describing the cycle of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Anger or silence, uh, the therapist went on to say, "Anger anger or silence, an explosion of rage, you react, he justifies his actions, then kind of apologizes or promises to change, and then you have the honeymoon play- phase until the next time he is triggered and then he abuses you some more. I was shocked. Over the next 20 minutes of our session, I started pulling different anecdotes and data points from different events I remembered, spanning over years of my life and making them fit into that model. Hmm. After we hung up, I was left reeling and re-narrativizing five years of my life with this person. I was in the cycle of domestic violence. I was a victim. I was abused. I was manipulated. Is there something wrong with my perceptions? Do I always need a friend or a therapist to tell me if something's wrong with my partner? The new way to see this new way to see and tell the story is honestly traumatizing to me. 
I'm wondering, why would a therapist propose a model like that to re-narrativize a client's past? Are therapists aware that this can be trauma-inducing to a client? Do they figure it's best in the long run if their client now is aware that they participated in this pattern before to avoid reproducing it in their next relationship? Why this narrative and not one of empowerment? Bob, what do you think? Well, that's a lot of questions. I can't remember them all. (laughs) If you're going to see this therapist again, probably just bring this email and go ahead and read it to him and see what you see. Yeah. Um, Well, let's break it down one one by one. Let's do them one at a time. Yeah. So anonymous patient goes in and has a past relationship that was for five years. It's it's in the past. Yep. And uh, they're talking about uh, this incident early on in their relationship. Second date. Yeah, right. where he gets angry, drove erratically. She was mm, scared. He, yeah. he, she was appeasing him, and then eventually he came forth and said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was angry and hurt that my father did this thing. It was triggering me, and I was bowling it over in the in, in the car." And the therapist says, "That sounds like an abuse cycle." What do you think about that? You, there's not enough data there. A plus cycle implies, you know, this is not a second date. This is a second date. You can't know if there's a cycle yet. You also can't understand. Was the was the ex driving erratically in order to scare the person who's this person who wrote in? We don't we don't know that. If I suppose if we knew that, that might be a bit of data. But we since we don't know that, seems like a pretty pretty big leap. Plus, I'm kind of curious, like, of all the leaps, what makes it important to take this leap, especially this early in? Because this is a second date, and also this is a second session with the therapist, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that's interesting. I'm sure it means nothing, but it just stuck out. Um, um, it's It does seem rather um, abrupt. And so, for me, the question is, what makes this interpretation important to the therapist? Mm-hmm. I'd kind of want to know that. Like, mm-hmm. if that were my... If it were my therapist, I know it's hard to talk to therapists about therapy. It is really hard to talk to therapists about therapy, but it's totally legit and a it's good scary. One. Yeah, yeah, but it's very helpful. It's to do. it's a really good idea. It's yeah. So I hope that you will because imagine not doing it, and then what happens in therapy is you get this hidden thing, this like wondering and this sort of angst about perhaps even like if I say the wrong thing, is my therapist going to go off on that rant or tangent? Right. Um, Twenty minutes is a long time to usurp a session for something that the client hasn't asked for. Mm-hmm. I'm sure perhaps the therapist is just thinking, well, okay, let's be useful and get this card on the table or I don't know. But yeah. they're probably not trying to be any kind of, you know, jerk or anything, but I don't I don't really get it based on what you wrote. Like what's up? Yeah. So the first off I'll say is the label of an abusive cycle is not like a blood test that you take. It's not a scientific determination. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a conceptualization. Yeah. And it's a way of looking at something. It's a way of re-narrativizing it. Mm-hmm. Now, some stories that people will tell me are just slam dunk abusive narratives that I'm hearing. I'll just be like, wow, that's abusive. You know, like in this, if, if we heard more from this uh, anecdote, like yeah. he, I tried to say, hey, could you please slow down? And he said, screw you you're always telling me what to do Mm. and uh you know shut up you know look what you made me do i'm driving fast you know that's abusive yeah but the way he described it he was uh hurt and 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 admitted that which is not typical for abusive people to do Uh, but well i mean 
sometimes they can do that in the abuse cycle for sure. But, sure. but the way he described it, he was upset and he was driving fast. And as Bob says, did he know he was scaring you or right. was he even doing it to scare you? That, you know, that's a key question. Right. And just the way he described it now, is it wrong that he did that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Yuck. what's wrong with you? Why are you driving fast? You yeah. know, there's other ways to be upset other than putting everyone's life in danger, right. you know? Yeah, right. Um, but you know, the way you described it, I, I, I wouldn't have jumped to, no. to abuse. The, the other thing uh, that I'll say is that there are some therapists who are extremely oriented towards abuse identification. Oh, sure. I, I would say that, uh, I, I would say, well, more broad, I would say that I'm guessing every therapist, including you and I, Bob mm. have like a a bias in terms of our assessment that we're will accentuate certain things as we're hearing them and sure and make some assumptions maybe sometimes you know based yep. on what we're hearing yeah all people subject to bias yeah and there are some who are of this bias uh they have the type which is they see abuse everywhere yeah everything is abuse to them right and um, because I'm guessing they were abused, mm-hmm. honestly, or they treated a lot of abuse. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when you, uh, when I would work with chemical dependency folks, they would see addiction and you know substance use problems under every rock. You know, sure. Uh, it was always like, well, you know, how often do they drink? And I'd be, you know, I'd be talking to my client, be like, well, right. I, I don't know, like, you know. I think they, yeah, I think they drink on the weekends. Oh, uh, you better look into that. You know, it's just a, yeah. it's a way of seeing the world, I guess. You get a hammer, everything turns into a nail. Right, exactly. Not that it's wrong, but it, it, it's, it's a thing. The other thing you say here is, uh, and of course, we don't know if your therapist is like that. But no. on the flip side, you say, over the next twenty minutes of the session, I started pulling different anecdotes and data points from different events that you remembered spending over years and making them fit into that model. Mm -hmm. What that implies is that there were a lot of incidents, maybe even with this fella that actually looked abusive to you. Um, So if that's true, then the initial uh, bias might have panned out because there actually were anecdotes that fit into the abuse. But I don't know. I don't, were all those other anecdotes also not, uh, uh, relevant. Bob's uh, shaking his head because he keeps dropping his phone. It's time to hit your guitar. Yeah, uh, uh, but he picked it up, put it back in his pocket, fell out again, and uh, it'll stay on the floor. Yeah, for a I while. think you just recommend maybe just when you walk in the the office, you just put it on the floor and start <laughs> off because it didn't fall the last time we were recording too. Oh, I don't know. Probably. I think it did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so then you say. Uh, it sort of traumatized you. Um, what do you think about that? So, and she she seems kind of upset. Like, you know, how come the therapist just like winged this thing out there, and and it was traumatizing to me to re-narrativize that relationship as abusive. What does it mean, traumatizing? Well, you know, she's saying I'm I'm seeing. So I originally saw this relationship as sure. just like you know it was fine, not abusive. Mm-hmm. We had our differences and we broke up. Now I'm looking back and I'm seeing everything through, I guess, my therapist's eyes as he was abusing me the whole time. I was a victim the whole time. That's scary. It's sort of like when, 
uh, you're told that you were date raped, but you don't remember it. Like that's traumatizing. Even though you don't remember the events to know that you were unsafe in the past. Should you not know? Well, that's a different question. Yeah. But, and maybe it's relevant to this, but, uh, you know, she's saying, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering why a therapist uh, would propose a way of looking at things that would re-narrativize my past and, and traumatize me. You know, what do you think about that? Well, I doubt it was um, the therapist's intent to scare you or to cause, you know. So I, I think you have an important question here. I hope that you'll ask the therapist if you don't ask, does this happen sometimes? Does what happen? The have you seen it happen with clients where they're just like their eyes open wide and they see the past in a different light and they're like, "Oh my god, that's really disturbing to think about things like that." Well, the thing that came to my head is I certainly have had the experience of doing or saying something in therapy and then finding out later that I had an adverse effect on my client. Um um, so, uh, that's worth talking about. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. Are you asking me, have I traumatized somebody and then found out later I traumatized them? I guess. No. Uh, re-narrativizing causing distress. Like you illuminate and see through your eyes something from their past and you're like, huh, well, I kind of see it this way and it, it distresses them like, oh my God, what, what's happening? Hmm. No, that doesn't come to mind. Though what does come to mind is I was 22. Um, I was hanging out with my sweetie at the time, and she said, I was talking about something related to my own childhood, and she's like, Bob, that's abuse. And I'm like, nah, this is how it was. This is like, whatever. And she's like, Bob, that was abuse. And I remember that one just sort of sticking to me, like Velcro, you know, like, and, and I had to think about it. I mean, I, what I ended up doing is thinking about it really carefully. Um, and that was definitely a re-narrativizing of my experience that I found helpful. It, 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 you know, the impact of the thing may have nothing to do with the therapist's intention, and there may, have, if if indeed you are a person who suffered um, abuse, it actually might be good to have a recognition of it, so that you don't have to live through, you know, the next one and sort of, um, you know, um, in some kind of, um, you know, missing. Missing what's happening to you. Um, I I don't know. I keep coming back to the same thing. I don't even want to say it, which is, let's can we can we um, distinguish between you're scared and you're traumatized. Oh. It's scary. You just find yourself feeling scared by um, the reconceptualization of the thing. If you believe it's inaccurate, that's cool. That's something worth talking about. If you believe it's accurate, that's really something at some point worth talking about traumatizing i don't know man like i don't want to equate being scared with being traumatized Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean depends on your definition yeah 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 i could be getting a little you know persnickety well why why what are you any persnickety are you saying like don't blow it out of proportion i'm saying if it's not out of proportion then keep it in proportion right yeah which is don't blow it out of proportion (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes it is when, yes yes it is um what what yeah as as we're talking about it i'm like huh actually this has happened to me too what's happened where i've been um in therapy or talking with someone and they will point something out and they'll say uh 
that's abusive. You mm-hmm. understand? And I'll be like, huh? Like I, you know, I remember a moment with my last therapist and she, I was telling her about a thing at work and she said, she just said, oh yeah, that's abusive. And I was like, huh? And I'm, you know, I'm a therapist. I'm a grown man. I'm pr- probably in my forties at this point. Pretty smart guy. <laughs> should recognize and abuse when it happens to me. But I think the, what I'm getting at is that almost always when we're being abused, we don't see it as abusive. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you would have a, a narrative that wasn't quote unquote accurate in the beginning is almost universal in my experience mm-hmm. when you're being mistreated, particularly when you're a kid, obviously, cause you just don't even know any better. But I think even as an adult, it's really hard to see it because we don't value ourselves enough in that way. I think in a lot of, a lot of instances, I also think that it, I mean, I guess there's some obvious, like if someone smacked me across the face because I came home late one night or something, then I'd be like, well, that's, but I think most abuse scenarios involve not obvious intimidation. And so because we tend to blame ourselves when we're afraid, you know, it's like, well, why am I so afraid? Why am I being a chicken? Right. right why can't right. I just deal with this instead of why is this person doing this to me? Like, why are they making me afraid? Why do I even feel afraid right now? I'm on a second date with someone. Why are they making me afraid? <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We're just, if he's upset, you know, there's other ways of dealing with, hurt from your father saying yeah. something to you. You don't have to inject fear into people around you, you know, it's, but, um, but I think there's this bias of like, I'm afraid there must be something wrong with me yeah, or I, I need yeah. to cope with it better. Yeah, or, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm too scaredy cat or something. And, um, so I think, I think that's, that's part of it. And, uh, now in terms of, you know, you're saying you've been re-traumatized by it. Um, and you're saying, you know, why this narrative and not one of one of empowerment? You know, as Bob was saying, you know, you got to ask the therapist that. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say in general, if, if in the moments that I've been through that, and I guess the moments I've been through that with my clients, is that the healing process begins when you recognize you have a wound. Uh, you don't want to invent a wound. No. And I don't even think that's possible to do, but yeah. unless you really brainwash someone, but mm. which can't happen. But, mm. um, you know, uh, a, a lot of people are walking around with a lot of wounds and they don't uh, and haven't had the luxury or the secure relationship to even take the time to look down. And this can actually even happen physically to people. They'll have something wrong with their leg or something and they're just surviving the day and they don't even go, I wonder what's going on with my leg because they're they're trying to survive and i think that you know is an apt analogy to emotional wounds as well anonymous patron she says if you want to please ask bob this question bob is awesome oh thank you let's say you have a client who is 16 they disclose to you that they were sexually assaulted by a high school classmate Mm. they don't want to tell their parents they don't want to make a police report are you legally required to report it to the police anyway CPS in my state does not work on child-on-child crime. Bob, what do you think? Oh, I, I don't know. Um, are you, am, is the therapist legally required to report 
abuse that happened. Child on child. So 16 on 16 year old on 16 year old sexual assault. Okay. 16 year old and 16 year old sexual assault. Is it? I don't actually know the, I don't work with kids. I don't know the answer to this question. Yeah. I uh, know enough to know that I would always, if I were in this situation, consult with a true expert, not necessarily your ethics teacher, because they sometimes know almost nothing about how the real world works. I would consult with people that I have, I have, you know, Francis is my lawyer and I would actually, and she's a therapist too. And so I would actually contact her and she's very buttoned up and very up to date on a lot of these and, and actually goes to court under a lot of these complaints. And you had a lawyer. Yeah. Francis. Yeah. Well, she helped us develop our, um, our policies for psychology in Seattle. Psychology in Seattle has, 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 has policies. I signed my training. Yeah. I, I trained you on the policies. Well, She and I developed those together. Right on. <laughs> Wasn't cheap, by the way. No, I'm lawyers not. are not cheap. Anyway, um, so I, uh, uh, what am I saying? Oh, I, I would consult with her because even if I felt like I understood the law and the ethics, it's very likely that I don't understand the nuances of this yeah. because there's there's so many nuances that you cannot teach in a ethics class you have to talk to lawyers who actually go to court mm. and because the other thing that is distressing to a lot of us in our field is that just because there's a rule or an ethic doesn't mean that that's what happens in a court you know yeah. a court of law is dependent on the judge and the jury who are not therapists yeah. so when they look at our ethical codes or the precedent in the court they can rule in a variety of ways and lawyers understand all that stuff way better than, than we do as, you know, non lawyers. Non lawyers. Yeah. Um, so that'd be the first thing. But, and and the other thing, the other factor here is I'm not up to date on these issues because I closed my supervision practice back in the day when I had supervised these, I, you know, prided myself on being up to date on all these kinds. I I, I had all these notes and I still do, but I sort of, let go of all that because it was such a pain in the butt to like be a to kind of be up to date about all those things. But what I'll say is that just kind of walking through this in Washington State, we're required to take reasonable actions to prevent harm. It's kind of different than other states actually because we have precedent, court precedent in this state that the Peterson case that um, affirmatively requires us to prevent harm in general, not just suicide, um, and. That might involve breaking confidentiality in a situation like this. You know, if if your client tells you I was sexually assaulted by a peer, if you if you it could be and then say it happens again, or say that that perpetrator abuses just anyone else, and it, and then it's found out that you knew about it and did nothing, you could get dragged into court and possibly sued for uh, not doing anything about mm-hmm. it. Um, and then you'll say, well, but I, a confidentiality and, you know, there's there's confidentiality. Laws. Sure. And they'll say, well, but you you had enough information that gave you reason to believe that harm was going to happen in the future. And this has nothing to do with kids. This is any human. Yeah. This is adults. You right. know, um, so uh, on the other hand, if you break confidentiality, your client and uh, this other person could sue you for 
breaking confidentiality. <laughs> so that's why you, uh, you could also get sued by the parents if you don't disclose to them, because they could say that it's, in, it was, you know, incredibly important. And, and that's the distressing part of our field is that when you actually look at how judges and juries actually rule on these things, it's, there's not a clear answer to these situations, but there is a clear answer, which is if you go through the process. So anonymous patron, if all you do is write into a podcast and ask advice, and then you take an action and you get sued, then uh, they can say you did not do enough to find out what you should do in a situation like this. Whereas if you talk to a lawyer and even you and the lawyer are like, well, I don't know, you could do this, you could do that. But, you know, you spend an hour kind of mulling it over and colleagues and maybe supervisors. You, You talk with, say, three experts and you kind of mull it over and you take the same action and you get sued, that's much more likely to result in a favorable uh, ruling for you than otherwise. So this is why I tell clinicians out there is to have three people who, uh, and one of them has to be someone who's legitimately an expert in this area. Someone who, you know, like I have um, Francis Showpick, by the way, is her name. And some of y'all will hire her um, uh, to have a legitimate expert that knows what they're talking about. I, I almost kind of consider these to be like super experts mm-hmm. um, because there are experts who still don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, but at the very least, you know, f- get an expert and then maybe two other people whose wisdom you respect. Mm-hmm. And then whenever anything like this happens, you confer with all three of them, you document it, and then you take an action. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that it could be argued, and I've seen this happen before with CPS, that when you see a kid being mistreated, uh, it's sometimes the fault of the parents that they weren't doing enough to protect that child, even though the parents didn't abuse the child. So it could be argued that CPS should be involved because the parents weren't overseeing this child enough to protect that child, or the school wasn't overseeing the child enough to protect that child from abuse, even though the abuse was from another uh, child. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is, can sometimes be a, a basis. Bob, at the very end here, I have a bunch of questions just for you. Okay. Patron Chloe from Austin had a number of questions for you, so I'm in a rapid fire. You ready to go? Ready. Okay. If you could make yourself believe in anything, what would it be? God. <laughs> Why? Because it's a great comfort to believe in God. Yeah. You said that very quickly. Thank you. How do you remind yourself that the world and people are good? I just know that. I don't have to remind myself. I just know that. Yeah. Down in my bones. What were some early milestones in your life that let you know therapy was really working for you? That therapy was working. Early, early milestones. Because I'm guessing Chloe is like, I'm in the early phase of therapy. Yeah. Sorry, Chloe. I thought you meant like milestones in my, like when I was 12. Uh, Sorry. Um, When I could take a risk with my therapist, when we had a significant discussion. What kind of, oh, this is the risk? What's the, what kind of risk? Oh, okay. No, wait. Yeah. I'm not being specific. Let's try again. When I asked him if he loved me, um, when he asked me if I were safe. And then actually talked to me about how I would know I was safe, which I had never considered before and had braided together what is safe with what feels safe. 
if you ask somebody who's like me, who, you know, are you safe? And I tell you, well, I don't feel safe. And that's the end of the story. We haven't gotten enough, far enough. So here's what we did. We talked about it. I was like, well, nobody's busting in the door. My, my therapist is an Xboxer and he's 6'4". <laughs> he's got reach. <laughs> but he's never come out of his chair and clocked me. He's never attacked me verbally. Um, we have had um, some... I have spats too much. We've had disagreements along the way. We survive them. Um, still care about one another. Um, I have become less content focused. In fact, most of my sessions these days don't have any content in them. Like the other day, here's what happened in my marriage, blah, blah, blah. I almost never talk about that stuff. Most of what I talk about has to do with what's going on between us in the present moment. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. I don't like doing it. Um, but I do, uh, get the fruit of it. So it sounds like, uh, the first milestone, you can identify with your current therapist is being extremely authentic and real about your insecurities about the relationship with him. Yes. Yeah. There was one. Um, I canceled a session quickly. Uh, um, not I was in the hospital and I called him and I said, I'm in the hospital. I can't go. I can't come to our meeting. And he's like, well, I can move the time if you want. And I, I sort of punted on that. And then we talked about it the next week. And the thing is, is, I could have met with him and I didn't want to leave my house. I just did. I just wanted to stay home and be with Colleen, which he validated. He's like, Oh, it sounds like you wanted to stay home and be with Colleen. Is there some reason I shouldn't charge you for the session? And I got angry. And what oh, was really? So he was saying, Oh, it sounds like you didn't have a legitimate reason to cancel. Yeah. And he's, he's right. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't want to come. Yeah. That's not a reason for him not to get paid you know, for his time or whatever. It's just a reason I'm not going to therapy that day. And um, I was so angry with him because I was equating his agreement to not charge me, his, um, um, not agreement, I was equating his willingness to not charge me with his care for me. Mm. And I remember feeling really upset with him when I left that session and walking to my car and I started really thinking about it. I'm like, no, they're not the same. Mm. They're not the same. So I called him up and I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. Please charge me. We're good. That was important thing to go through to recognize that I were mixing those two together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So many attachment injury reactions involve that kind of, um, what do they call it? Convolution. Yeah. But whatever that just, uh, what's that word? It's a C word. Anyway, it's, um, conflating, conflating, conflating conflating that's a good word right you conflate the his professional policy that he has with all of his clients right with care with does he actually love you or right or 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 are you just a a, yeah just a dollar sign right and the sort of also the black and whiteness of that Uh you know he could both care for you and you're a dollar sign (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you pay his bills and they are both true Yeah. yeah 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 Do you wish the world would become like you so you didn't have to become like them? No. Why? Because there is good reason for me to change. Um, I don't think the world needs to be like me. Uh, Are you asking me, do I wish I were more individuated? Yeah, I do. Differentiated? Absolutely. I keep striving for that. But I don't actually wish the world would come to me. I think actually it is my job to go out into the world more than I do. Have you ever had periods where you found a defense 
And when it failed, you went right back to the spiral that everyone looks down on you. That does not ring a bell, but I, I'm not sure I followed this question. And I, I bet there's, I bet if I thought about it enough, I'd probably say, yeah. Are you scared of losing your ability to feel special moments as exceptionally meaningful? No. Are you scared of losing your ability to feel special moments as exceptionally meaningful? No. I wonder if they're asking that because of demoralization that's generalized. And then when a special moment happens, it isn't seen as a special moment. Does that ever happen? No, but I'm 54 now. And I can tell you this, I don't feel passion the way I did in my thirties and my twenties. And sometimes I miss that. Um, but I think, um, there's a sort of a natural mellowing out of my, what do you mean by passion? Um, I don't get as turned on by things. Turned on. Are you talking sexually or no? Oh, I'm just mean like I don't get excited about stuff the way I used to. Like when politics I was young. or art. Yeah, I never got into politics, so mostly art, films, stories, ideas. Yeah. Um, I don't get I don't get as stoked as I used to. Yeah. 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 Uh, me, me neither. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, and I, I still get moved by certain movies. I saw oh. Finch. Have you seen the? Tom Hanks movie. No, I want to see that. Was it good? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's slow. Yeah. And tender and kind of like emotionally a little dark. Okay. You could argue very dark at times. Okay. And it's Tom Hanks just, just rocking it. And, uh, they, they, they're all, there were so many true and I, they didn't get great reviews. I mean, it got okay reviews, but a lot of people dinged it. I think because they thought it would be more like a zombie movie or something, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and it's really, um, like almost like a, a very limited uh, premise to a movie. You know, there's it doesn't get big, and there's not any explosions or anything like that. So it uh, it's it's very it's it's very. So as I was watching it, I was like, this is kind of like. Castaway meets Forrest Gump. I was thinking about Castaway as you were talking. Yeah, it's it's kind of like Castaway without the exciting parts. <laughs> really, you know? Okay, fair enough. Because there's some exciting parts in Castaway. Uh-huh. Like when the plane goes down, uh-huh. when he gets rescued and uh-huh. he goes back. Um, in Finch, there's really nothing like that. And I was sobbing at the end. Oh. I mean, it is... There's a few moments there where it's just like, it really just got under my skin, right that, that movie. So when that happens, yeah. I'm like, okay, I still got it. Still alive. <laughs> All right, Bob. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.